Hi, this is Daniel Jepson, and you're listening to the podcast, Your Word is a Lamp. Today is a sermon that I preached on the name Messiah, as we continue our sermon series on the names of Christ. This was preached December 6, 2020 at Franklin Community Church. I hope you find it a blessing. Amen. Now, as I said, we're going to look at this name or this title, Messiah. And interestingly enough, uh, most of you may, or some of you may know, that Christ or Messiah basically mean the same thing. Those two words, Christ or Messiah, mean the same thing. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, If you were to call Jesus by the first century equivalent of a last name, you would say Jesus Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph. But he's not called that because that wasn't necessary. But Christ is not his last name. In fact, it's not a name at all. It's a title. And in English, it is exactly equivalent to the title Messiah. They mean the same thing. So let's flesh this out a little bit. As you can see, English translations will go either way. So these are the two best-selling English translations. I believe that's true anyway. Uh, the New International Version and the English Standard Version. And you can see they take the same passage in Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the Nativity, and the same verses are going to be translated as the the Messiah in the NIV or the Christ. And again, that's because you could use either word interchangeably in English. Now, let's flesh this out. They mean the same thing in English. How, How does that come about? Well, Messiah is actually just a transliteration, not a translation, of the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach. So transliteration means you just take the letters and you use the best English equivalent. Of course, I didn't use quite our letters, so you just take the best English equivalent. Christ is a transliteration of Christos, which is a translation or a different, different word meaning the same thing of the Hebrew. So when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated in the centuries before Christ into a Greek New Testament, they would use this word in the Greek language. And in English, we put that as Christ. So that's how these words came to be. They both mean the same thing because they both mean uh, this word, Mashiach. Now, what does Mashiach mean? We have no idea. Um, No, just kidding, we do. Uh, It means the anointed one, the anointed one. Now, what does anointed mean then? Well, anointed means just simply this, to pour oil over someone or something. In this case, it would be olive oil. It would be poured out of a flask. And to anoint someone meant that you would take that person and you would pour oil over their head, sometimes over the rest of their body as well. Now, that seems odd to us. Why would someone be pouring olive oil over your body? Well, because of this. Olive oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so when someone was anointed this way, it was a sign that God, because he's using his prophet usually, God was anointed this person. He was setting them apart for a special task. And they had the Holy Spirit on them to say that they had the wisdom and the power of God's Holy Spirit. So to anoint someone meant to set them apart for a special task with the symbol of the Holy Spirit placed upon them. That's what anointing meant. 
there were primarily two kinds of people that were anointed, all right? Two kinds of people. One were the priests, and you can see this in, in the book of Exodus. There's a long section about how the priests are going to be anointed, and, and they are the ones anointed because they are God's representative, God's mediator between God and man. And we'll come back to that theme. And the other were kings. And if you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, many other places in the historical books, you'll see how uh, Samuel, the prophet, would anoint first, first Saul and, and then um, David and, and then others. So they would pour them up because the king was going to be God's special representative, God's ruler over his people. So he was going to represent God in that way. Now, very early on, though, there began to develop this idea of not only a king or a priest, but someone to come, someone who would be the anointed one, the Messiah or the Christ. Because priests, even though chosen for a special role, were human. They were sinners like us. They could never fully be God's representative. And kings, well, some of them were good. Most of them were not, right? But even at their best, a human king could only point towards someone ahead. They could never fully be the ruler that they were intended to be. They could never be God's full representative. And so these human priests and kings, people began to understand that there was something, they were pointing ahead to someone. And this is especially fleshed out if, if people were understanding their scripture that all the way back to Genesis chapter three, all the way back there at the very beginning, God was already promising one to come who would undo the works of the evil one and make things right. So this is his prophecy to the serpent representing the kingdom of Satan. And uh, he says, there will come one. I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman. Now notice this, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And uh, there's... Again, a little bit of metaphor going on here, but the idea is that there would be one who would come, an offspring of the woman, and he would receive a wound from the evil one, but he would also crush the evil one, is the idea. So all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3, you had this idea, and, and people began understanding that all these anointed ones in the Old Testament were looking ahead to some final anointed one, some Messiah, and that's where you come here now. Let's ask this question, though. All right. So to anoint is to pour oil over someone or something. So here's the question. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. Which role would the Messiah fulfill? Would he be a priest or would he be a king? Now, let's take just a second to talk about this. What is a priest? Well, a priest is not like myself. I, I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. A priest is actually someone who is a mediator between God and man. And so a, a priest was someone who represented God to people because by his being set apart, um, by his teaching, by the symbolism that he would wear and even his clothing, he represented something about God to people. But he was also someone who would represent people before God. Now, how did he do that? Because if you wanted to offer your sacrifice to the Lord, you went through the priest. In fact, many times if you wanted to offer your, your prayer through the Lord, people would come through the priest, although that wasn't required. But the priest was someone there in a middle position. And a king, of course, we understand what that's about. God's chosen ruler. 
there will be a time, and the book of Daniel talks about this quite a bit, when the kingdoms of this world will pass away, and one who is from the line of David will sit on the throne and rule all things in perfection. Which one would the Messiah be? Well, the Jewish expectation was pretty clear. The Messiah would come as the conquering king. And this is exactly why Jesus was not accepted by his own. Certainly, some Jewish people accepted him. I mean, Jesus and all the disciples were Jews. But especially the more powerful ones looked at him and rejected him because of their expectations and the way he did not live up to them at all. Their expectations were that the Messiah would come and he would bring relief from, from the overrule of Rome. And he would come as a conquering king, bringing freedom to his people, Israel, establishing this kingdom as this of power and glory. And how could Jesus, this carpenter's son, do this? This itinerant preacher, how could he be this? Especially, especially after he died a criminal's death, a shameful death on the cross. The cross was not only the most painful death that the Roman Empire could devise. It was the most shameful death, hanging there naked in pain and weakness as crowds jeered around you. It was designed to demoralize anyone or any people who thought they might want to rise up against Rome. How could that be the Messiah? How could this one who brought healing and teaching but not authority in, in the power in the sense they understood. You know, even John the Baptist, as John was sitting in prison and, and Jesus was healing and, and, and helping and teaching, he, he sent his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come? Or are we supposed to look for somebody else? Even John the Baptist. So the, the Jewish expectation was clear. The Messiah would come as God's chosen ruler. Here's the reality, though, that Jesus would come both as priest and king. Why? Because the first enemy that we have to confront is our own sin and the evil one that's brought the sin about. It's not so much the external things around us. It's this sin problem inside that has to be dealt with first if we're going to be God's people. Let's develop this a little bit here. Do you remember even in Genesis 3.15, the prophecy is that the the one to come will have his heel struck. In some way, he will be struck by the evil one. So even back here in Genesis 3, there is an element of this. And this is brought out even more because he comes first as a priest. Hebrews 2. This is a great passage. Again, the whole heart of Hebrews is about how Jesus is the, the true priest. It says this. Since the children, he means us, have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, um, and that he might make it so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So, this is what the book of Hebrews says. Because a priest had to, a, a real priest had to represent both sides. He had to be fully human to represent humanity before God. 
And he had to be fully God because God was the one who was the offended party, the one hurt by human sin and rebellion. And that, and that is the logic of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man because only then can he be the true mediator between God and mankind. I love how um, some of the ancient, not ancient, I should say early church fathers would write this. And these are three of the, of the largest names three of the men who were the church fathers and, and taught us and explained and brought about a lot of the formulations of orthodoxy that we have. Irenaeus, God became what we are, that, we might, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Athanasius, the great defender of the Trinity, God became like us so that we could become like God. Augustine, to make human beings, he was made to make human beings gods. He made man who was God, sorry, he was made man who was God. They're not born of his substance, that they should be the same as he, but they, by favor, should come to him. The idea being that, no, we're not God in the sense that we are being eternal uh, beings of, of unlimited power like he is. We are not the creators of the universe like he is. There's always going to be a distinction between God's essence and ours. But even from the very first, people understood that what was happening was this. God became man so that we could in some way become like God. That is the beauty of the incarnation. And it comes because Jesus is a priest. Now, so he comes as a man. But how does he, how does he do this? Well, the idea is this. That as Jesus comes, he offers himself. This priest offers his own self and his own suffering and death as the offering to Bring us atonement. And of course, the great passage here is Isaiah 53. As he writes about the the one to come, he says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain like one from from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Chapter goes on a little bit. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then later on in this chapter, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession intercession for the transgressors. So when Jesus comes, even this is prophesied hundreds of years before him, he will come in weakness because he will come as one by his own suffering and death will bear our iniquities. That is why Jesus comes. He comes, first of all, as a priest. Now, what does this mean for us right now? 
we'll come back to the idea of kingship here in a second. I think it means, first of all, this. Bring your sins and your weakness to this great high priest. That's why he came. Salvation is not something we earn or achieve. Salvation is a gift of God that we receive by faith. When we come and we say, God, I believe this crucified one is the Messiah, the one you sent, the only mediator between God and man. I place my trust in him, and I ask him to take away my sins, cover them by what he did at the cross. If you haven't made that step, that's where it all begins. It's a beautiful thing that God has done for us. He is our priest. He won't shove it down our throats, however. We come to him in confession and belief in that way. And again, if you haven't made that decision, talk to me, Pastor Nader, or someone here that you know can kind of guide you into what that decision fully means. That is the beginning of the Christian life. But as Christians, guess what? We have a continuing ability and calling to come to Jesus, our high priest, with our weaknesses and with our sins. His, his intercession is not only in the past tense. It's, it's a continuing thing. For example, that book of Hebrews we quoted before. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, now this is written to Christians, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Don't give up in spite of all the suffering and troubling you're having, is what he's telling these Christians in the first century. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. What a glorious thought. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is the promise to us believers, that Jesus is still in that role, and we can come to him with boldness and confidence. We can come to God through him. Why? Not because of our own worth, not because of our performance this particular week, not because we've earned it in any way, but because Jesus has paid the price, and now he is our priest. He is our intercessor. During the Civil War, a young soldier made his way to Washington. He had been called to, do, called to arms, but his... Uh, his two brothers had already been killed, and he alone was left to help his mother, who was a widow, manage the farm. So he came to Washington to seek an audience uh, with the president and asked for his relief from, from military service. But of course, as he goes to the goes there, he, he finds no way in. People are bustling about, and, and they're not going to let him anywhere near the president. He goes and sits on the, on the front steps, and a little boy comes up to him and asks him why he was so downcast. And he explained. And the boy of nine or ten takes him by the hand and says, here, come with me. And the boy takes him past all the officials bustling about, the secretaries of war and defense and, and the generals. And he brings him into the office, into the president himself. And President Lincoln looks at the boy and says, well, hello, Todd. Who do you have there with you today? He says, Dad, this is a soldier who really needs to talk to you. And he got what he requested. Why? Because there was a mediator there who granted access. And that is what we have with God. Not based on anything we've done, but because we have Jesus and his grace. 
So that's the first thing. Because he is our high priest. Here's the second thing about his priesthood. Remember, the cross comes before the crown. For the, for the Messiah and also for us. For Christ and those in Christ, the cross comes before the crown. Do you remember seeing this in Isaiah 53? After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After. Luke 24, this is the passage where the, the, it's on the road. Um, as they're traveling, there's two disciples, and they don't recognize the resurrected Jesus. Um, and they, they don't recognize that they get pouring their heart about. They, they thought this Jesus was the one to come, the Messiah, but then he, he, he up and died on it. And, and they're, they're, they're pouring their heart out in their disappointment. And he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did that the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And part of that obviously was Messiah first has to suffer and then, and then enter into glory. And that's true of our Lord and also ourselves. You see that here, Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So right now, you and I are heirs with Christ. And when I look at that, it's like, great. We are heirs with the king of the universe. So why does my life stink so much, right? Why is there all this suffering? Why is there all this uncertainty? Why is there such a gap between how I want life to be and how it is? And the answer is that for us, as for Jesus, the cross comes first. And in this life, we will suffer. Paul says it right here, right? Oh. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And this was from a man who knew a lot of them, right? You know, sometimes I think we oversell the Christian life. I heard a, heard a story about that that kind of relates to this a little bit. This um, young couple, they had a, a toddler. And they were going to take this toddler to uh, someplace. Place. I think it was Disneyland, actually. Uh, so they wanted to get the you know, toddler. know they're going to go on a trip and everything. But they wanted to make it this big surprise. And so, you know, they, they thought, okay, well, what can we make? We'll tell we're going on a trip. Um, you know, she's four or five years old, but uh, so we'll tell her, you know, we have to get in the car and everything, but we're going to, what's, what's the dullest thing we can think of? So, all right, we'll tell her we're going to go to a broccoli farm and, and see how they grow broccoli. And, uh, and then, you know, we'll tell her how wonderful it is and everything. And then when she knows where we're, where we're really going, she'll be overjoyed. And so the next thing you show, they show a picture of themselves and the little girl crying and uh, when she finds out, she's not going to the broccoli farm. And the caption was, when you oversell the broccoli farm. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we can oversell the Christian life that if we get things right and do things right, 
it's all going to be sunshine and roses and lollipops and rainbows. And uh, it won't be that way. Do you see anyone in Scripture in the New Testament who had that kind of life, even those most devoted to Jesus Christ? It won't be that way. We may get the idea that if we get it right in terms of living the Christian life the way it's supposed to be, at least as much as we're able to, then we'll have these blessings that God will, will make our life right. And it's not true, at least not in the terms of this world. There will be suffering. Paul pre presupposes this as a basic part of the Christian life. Not only here, there are a lot of different places we could show you. But here's the here's promise. Here's the promise, is that that pain is not wasted, it's not random. It is part of the way that we become like who we're supposed to be. Heard a story of a man who was a, he found this large cocoon. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it was large. And so he took it home, put it in an aquarium, and he waited for the cocoon, or more technically the chrysalis, to start opening. And as it started to open, it took, after it got to be a little bit open, it took a long time for the butterfly or the moth in there to, um, to, to get out. In fact, it looked like it was struggling and not able to. And so the man, in his mercy, as he thought, took a pen knife and very carefully expanded and tore open the chrysalis. And the moth, it was an emperor moth, came out, but it was misshapen. Its wings were not formed. It could not fly. And he found out later that it's in the process of struggling to open that chrysalis that its wings are, the, the nutrients go out to its wings and the wings are strengthened at that critical time and they're formed to fly. And that's a promise. If we are believers, is that the sufferings give way to glory that far, far outweigh them, but they're here now. They're here now. And we have to remember that the cross comes before the crown. But here's the good news also. The Messiah will come again. So there are two comings to the Messiah. He comes, first of all, in weakness as a sacrifice, but he will also come as king of all creation. And here's a passage that was read by the Koskis this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his greatness and of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is the time when God comes and dwells with us in a special way, as we're told in Revelation 21. And I heard loud, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, now God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the, old, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the time when the prophecies of Isaiah, not only here but in other places of his book, will be fulfilled, and the, and the sores will be beat into plowshares. And people, the nations will learn war no more, and the lion will lay with the lamb and the wolf with the, with the cub, or with the goat, I think it is. Anyway, the idea being that all things will be made right, that we will have the eternal king sitting on his throne rightfully, fully ruling the universe. But it's not yet. It's to come. And the challenge for us is this. 
The challenge of us is to believe this, but to set our eyes on the day when Christ, when the Messiah returns as king. So we don't just suffer here. We, we suffer, but it's an anticipation of this eternal, glorious thing. And if we, if we get this right, we understand. We understand that we may have to suffer. We may not have much status in the world's eyes. In fact, we may have people misunderstand us, look down upon us, even people that we care deeply about, sometimes even family members. But there will be a time when all that's forgotten. I'm going to end by relaying a story recorded by a missionary named Thomas Lamdy, who was an MD some years ago. He had served in many places in Africa and the Middle East, but he was in Scotland returning or working up some deputation and some other people to, to follow him. He was slow going. He was discouraged. And as he came home, his host, in order to encourage him, told him this story. In ancient days in this land lived a certain great nobleman whose wife was dead. His only child was a beautiful girl, now of marriageable age, for whom he desired to find a suitable mate. So he invited all the young men of the whole, young noblemen of the whole countryside to come on an appointed day to remain for a whole week of entertainment at the castle. And during that week when the young nobles were in close proximity with her, surely he thought a suitable match would be found of someone with equal rank. So great preparations were made for the festivities. A band of strolling players was hired, minstrels were hired, clowns and jesters. A great store of food and drink were prepared. Whole pigs were roasted along with hares and pheasants. A hundred appetizing foods were, were made ready, and the whole castle was in a bustle of preparation for this day and for the arrival of the notable guests. Early in the morning of that day, a loud knocking was heard on the gate of the castle, and an apparently deformed man on crutches appeared. He was wearing rags. A few crusts were unceremonious, unceremoniously thrust at him, and the gate slammed in his face. He refused the cross and kept knocking. Go away, you varmint, or we'll sick the dogs on you. But he continued to knock and beat upon the oaken panel with his crutches. What is it you want? Is this not the day appointed for the guest to come and see if the nobleman's daughter it is for this that I've come to beg for her hand? And he edged his way into the cobbled courtyard. What? You? Oh, do come and look at this deluded beggar. Peals of laughter echoed as cooks and servants and soldiers deserted their duties and gathered around to laugh and mock at the poor fool. The daughter was being adorned, by, being adorned for her guests, and she inquired of her maid what all the noise in the courtyard was about. Between giggles, the maid said, It's a poor beggar who wants to marry you. I'll go and see him. And down the winding stairs she went, through the deserted kitchen where meats were baking, out into the cobbled yard, and the crowd opened to let her pass. What is it you want? She asked the beggar, and he fastened upon her an earnest look. I have seen you myself while I was unnoticed, and I love you and have come to ask if you will marry me. Groans of laughter came from the crowd. She paused, gave him look for look, and after much time, she said, yes. I will marry you. More shrieks of merriment from the crowd. When, he said, a year and a day. Very well, I will return. And he hobbled off. 
her friends gathered around. You are a clever girl. You know how to get rid of him. I meant what I said. Oh, of course you didn't. What fun. And more laughter ensued. The guests arrived in due course, but she gave them no encouragement. The nobleman scolded his daughter. Finally, it was actually cruel, and the servants taking their cue from him were the same. Gloom descended on the castle even before the departure of the guests at the end of the week. And then ensued an unhappy year for the girl. For, for although she did her best to please her, his father, her father, he was not to be appeased. You would marry a beggar? He'll never come back, that's for sure. She would smile gently, but even that would only infuriate him. A year passed, and only one day remained if the beggar were to show up. The morning passed uneventfully and high noon, and then something quite different took place. Distant peals of music and tucks of drums were heard, and the sun flashed on spears and polished armor. A courier spurred to the gate with the astonishing news that the king's son, the royal prince, was arriving at once. There was no time for preparation. The nobleman, accompanied by his daughter, had barely time to reach the castle, castle gate when he saw, riding between um, a couple... I'm sorry, when he saw, riding between two rows of knights and squires that reached to the horizon, the king's son. He was mounted on a magnificent white charger and was clad in golden armor and his face shone like the sun. Swinging gracefully from his steed, he stood in front of the nobleman, to whom he gave no notice, and he took the girl by the hand and stood and said in a most endearing fashion, my love, I have come for you, even as I said. Her eyes were filled with tears as she murmured, I knew you would come. So he took her, his bride, to the royal kingdom far away. But before she left, there was just time for one of the maids to ask, How did you know? How did you know that the beggar was a prince in disguise? Ah, she said, I looked into his eyes, and I saw something there. I listened to his voice, and something I heard made me know that this was indeed the son of the king. It's like that today. Jesus came as the lowly, meek Lamb of God who was despised and rejected, mocked and reviled. He was obviously not the one sent from God, the Messiah. John came in weakness, or Jesus came in weakness to seek a bride. And there are those, I pray we are among those, who have looked into his eyes, heard something in his voice, and indeed know that he is the son of the king. And we know that he shall return, just as he said. Even so, come the great Messiah of God. Let us pray. Father, as we come to these carols now, would you give us through them a deeper understanding? Especially as we begin to worship by asking, what child is this? And we say with faith, this, this is Christ the King. This little one in the manger, this one on the cross who died as a shameful criminal, we proclaim and we believe is Christ, the Messiah, the King over all. Thank you. Thank you that you came in weakness, that you came in weakness and sacrifice first, because only then could we come to you. So thank you for that, God. Help us to adjust our thinking and our expectations and help us to put our eyes upon that day when you return in glory. Let that day change us even now, we pray. Amen.
This has been Your Word is a Lamp. Thank you for listening.